welcome to The Bible and the English Major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I'll keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. like to see an article version of this and future podcasts, you can go to my website at marandjo.com. There, you'll find citations to the work I reference, as well as links to other interesting articles on the topic. We are on Mark 5, Part 4, Hook, Line, and Sinker. It's time to wrap up this series, and I'm excited to do it. Today, we'll see how Mark uses a trio of literary devices to drive his main point all the way home. A plus for execution, Mark. Also, a little heads up. Usually, we do the Bible story speed run at the beginning of things, but you'll need to be patient today. Don't worry. I have my reasons. Here's what you need to know. This is the part where I explain some context. In an attempt to reach a broader audience, here's some math. In the verses we keep talking about, Mark averages an instance of juxtaposition every 2.25 sentences. Okay, enough of that. Back to English. Why does Mark jam it all in there? Well, way back in episode two, I said Mark is trying to indicate an undercover reality with his playful literary winks. He is trying to draw in those who get it as followers of Jesus. There's more to get, though. There always is. Mark has a larger point to make beyond the story's literal meaning, and he uses juxtaposition to signal us. We're meant to think, gee, there's more juxtaposition happening here than the last opposite day I endured with my small children. Perhaps there's something up. In this case, juxtaposition is a flashing neon arrow pointing to everyone's favorite literary device. Symbolism. Simply put, symbolism is the idea that some things actually represent other things. Here, the healings we've been discussing are not only about those who have been in front of us the whole time, but also the entire community of God. There's great evidence to suggest that these healings are also symbolic of Jesus' renewal of Israel. Israel is the name God gives the people he begins a relationship with way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The Hebrew Bible tells the story of that relationship throughout many hardships, including enslavement in Egypt and subsequent liberation. These stories of God's continued faithfulness remain central to Jewish culture and religion now and provided hope and strength then as the Hebrew peasants resisted their oppressors. At the time when Jesus appears on the scene, Richard Horsley writes, they would have quote, eagerly responded to prophecies that God was again about to liberate them, 
from their Roman rulers and restore their community under the divine principles of justice, end quote. By making the healed ones symbolic of Israel, Mark is saying Jesus is this liberator, not just of the woman and Jairus' daughter, but of God's people, Israel. And not just in the physical healed way, but as Christians believe through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, in the made well way, too. A little throwback to episode one if you weren't with us yet, or if your memory needs jogging. Jesus tells the woman she is made well, which means she's physically healed and also by her faith saved. Back to symbolism. I'm now hearing echoes from my senior year English class with the infuriating and beloved Mr. Johnson, also known as Larry Litt, grinning behind his podium. Very rarely would a short story go by without a classmate crying, how were we supposed to know that was a symbol? Which would only widen his sadistic grin. Symbolism is certainly one of the trickier literary devices to detect. There are a few clues, although honestly, I think there's a fair amount of intuition that goes into it. A favorite professor of mine says, there's just something there, there, to indicate that it's time to sniff around for what's not obvious. So, in this case, what's there? First, as I mentioned, all the juxtaposition tips us off. Another clue is when something seems to have more significance than its literal reality suggests, often indicated by repetition. In our case, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn there are 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus calls 12 disciples, indicating chosenness, like the chosen people of Israel. As a 12-year-old, Jairus' daughter is on the verge of womanhood. If her period hasn't yet come, it will. It's no coincidence that the woman has been bleeding for 12 years, the same amount of time this girl's been alive. So we examine these repeated details. The number 12, womanhood, bleeding, throw in some biblical context, spin around three times, and voila! We see both of these characters are prevented by their uncleanness from producing life. Remember, we're talking symbolically here, so while literally we're talking about physical health and having babies, figuratively we're talking about spiritual health and rejuvenation for Israel, which comes through Jesus and his life-giving touch. That was a very quick skim of a complicated topic. If you want the particulars, Adam Kubis lays out an extensive argument regarding this symbolism including some of the above details and many others. I will include the link to that article in the show notes. There's one more note to make about this symbolism. Symbols don't have to be fiction. Mark applies devices like juxtaposition and symbolism to make his broader point about Jesus renewing Israel. But that does not mean the literal healings of the woman and the girl didn't happen. It may be helpful for you to compare this version with Matthew's rendering in Matthew 9, 18 to 26. His take is more straightforward without the juxtaposition or symbolism. 
Reading it will show you Mark merely adds layers to the story without making the base layer untrue. Mark's juxtaposition supports one more literary device. Merism. A merism is a figure of speech in which opposing words are used to describe the entirety of the whole. For example, I love you body and soul means I love every bit of you. And if I searched high and low for that soccer jersey, I really looked everywhere. In the conclusion of his Symbolism article, Adam Kubis points out that the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter form a merism. They stand at opposite ends of the Jewish religious system, one marginalized, one connected, and thus together the healed ones represent the whole people of Israel. The juxtaposition of the woman and Jairus and his daughter in all their opposite ways supports Mark's crucial point that when Jesus gives new life to Israel, it's not just for a specific subset of Israel, but for all of the community of God, the women, the men, the poor, the rich, the marginalized, and the privileged. And that's the long and the short of it. It's time to shake things up. If you've been with me for a bit, you know we usually do the Bible story at the beginning, but not today. I didn't want it to get lost in the discussion about symbolism and merism. We're going to look briefly at the verses that come before and after our story today, because context is important. And because Mark didn't just make a sandwich here, he made one of those freaking six-foot-long party subs. Let's see if you can catch it. Before you listen to my Bible story speed run or read on your own, here's what to look for when consuming the verses surrounding the story. First, where does the action in these verses take place? Second, what is said about Jesus? And third, who ends up amazed? Where's the action? What is said about Jesus? Who ends up amazed? Got it? Okay, if you're going to read on your own, here are the verses. Mark 5, 1 through 20, and Mark 6, 1 through 6. Go ahead and read them now or prepare for the Bible story speed run. Okay, team, we've got 20 hold verses here, so I got to do it fast. This is the before story. That's what we're going to call it because it comes before the verses we've been studying. Okay, on my mark. Get set, go. Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat on the Gentile or not Jewish side of the lake, and they come across a man who has been tormented by unclean spirits. He's bruising his body against the rocks. He's living among the tombs. He's howling all night. Everyone's terrified of him. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do you have to do with us? Son of the most high God, don't torment us. Please, instead of sending us into the country, send us into these pigs. And so uh, Jesus casts these unclean spirits into the pigs. The pigs rush into the water and drown. The swine herds go into town to say what just happened to their herd and to this man. And the city dwellers come back and they're terrified. They send Jesus away. And as Jesus is leaving, the man says, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. So the man goes into the Decapolis and spreads the word. And everyone in all these Greek cities 
are amazed to hear the news. That was a minute and three. I'm okay with that. Okay, now we're going to do the after story, the verses that come after what we've been reading. It's much shorter, just six verses. So we're going to try and do it in 30 seconds. On my mark, get set, go. Jesus and his disciples decide to go to Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. So they are in the synagogue and Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, the holy day, and the people hearing him are astounded. And they're going, where is he getting all this? This is the carpenter, Mary's son. His brothers and sisters are right here with us. And they're offended because it's just Jesus. And Jesus couldn't do anything but heal a few sick people there. And he is amazed at them because they don't believe in him. Let's get on with the show, the part where we really dive into the story. Did you notice more juxtaposition? This mark doesn't quit. We can't dive super far into these stories because the clock is ticking, but we can answer the three questions I asked and talk about why they matter to the story we've been studying. Question one. Where does the action happen? The before story happens in the country of the Gerasenes, a Gentile region, among the tombs, in a place of death and uncleanness. This region was foreign to Mark's readers with Greek culture and religion. The after story happens in Jesus' hometown synagogue, a place of life, on the Sabbath, a holy day of rest. It's as close to home as you can get. Question two, what is said about Jesus? In the before story, the Gentile man with an unclean spirit calls Jesus son of the most high God in verse 65. Basically, he calls Jesus God. In the after story, those in the synagogue call Jesus the son of Mary and brother to a whole slew of siblings in verse 6-3. They take offense at him because he's the same Jesus they played baseball with as kids, and he struck out just as often as they did. They're saying he's really not God. Question three, who ends up amazed? In the before story, everyone from the district of 10 Greek cities who hears about the restored man ends up amazed. Verse 20, in the after story, Jesus himself, because of the unbelief of his Jewish next-door neighbors, ends up amazed. Some translations will tell you that in verse 6-2, those who hear Jesus in the synagogue are also amazed, but it's not the same Greek word that describes the citizens of the Decapolis and Jesus. The difference between the two Greek words is admittedly small, but if Mark the juxtaposition nerd made a word choice that supports another opposite pairing— I'm willing to bet it was intentional. To sum up, the stories pair a Gentile man with unclean spirits living among the tombs with Jews gathering in the Nazareth synagogue. The Gentile man calls Jesus God, and Jesus' Jewish neighbors call him Mary's kid. The Greeks from the Decapolis are amazed by Jesus, And Jesus is amazed by the unbelief of the people he's known his whole life. 
I know you know enough about juxtaposition at this point to realize these are no accident. Mark carb loads even more bread on his sandwich because he really wants us to get who's included in this community of God. He further broadens the merism so we see the welcome is even wider than we expected. Not only is it not based on position or gender or proper behavior, see Exhibit A, the hemorrhaging woman, we see here that it's also not about ethnicity, culture, or where you're from. It's still about the meat of the sandwich. It's about faith, about how a person responds to Jesus. And it's clear from these stories that we can't always predict who has faith and who doesn't. Mark is showing us a community of extreme people, which includes the marginalized woman whose uncleanness would cause others to look away in disgust, and the privileged synagogue leader who's profiting off the backs of his fellow Jews. There's also the foreigner with the unclean spirits and the neighbors who gather in the synagogue. In the spirit of merism, they illustrate the extreme entirety of God's inclusiveness. It's tempting to leave it there and pretend everybody's happy with the situation, but I'm not sure we are. Honest question. How do you feel about the extreme members of society. When you walk past a person who is mentally ill and homeless, what do you feel? Disgust? Fear? Discomfort at your own culpability in their situation? How about when you hear of a billionaire or politician who is abusing their tremendous power? Anger? Hatred? How many times have you invited either of these folks to dinner? Me? Zero. I think Mark is trying to play it both ways with us, which is pretty typical of him and his love for irony. He provides details to evoke sympathy with the long-suffering woman and desperate Jairus, but we're not meant to be fully comfortable with them. Part of Mark's point in choosing extreme characters to symbolize Israel is that Jesus liberates people most of us would ignore or condemn. Humans make rules all the time about who comes in and who gets left out. From social cliques to immigration, we all have our limits. But here's what Mark's literary devices say about the Israel Jesus came to renew. Anyone can come. Anyone, no matter what secrets need confessing or what hatred needs releasing. No one is outside the loving action of Jesus. And that should challenge us. Because we all have limits on who we extend our love to. Rachel Held Evans sums up Mark's message this way. Quote, The apostles remembered what many modern Christians tend to forget. That what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. End quote. Some of you have asked me what you should do do with the information I'm presenting to you. I haven't felt a burden to decide that for you, because I think that's between you and God. But if I had to sum up my hope for this series, it would be that it helps us all be an inclusive community of God that can be honest with ourselves and each other. The name Israel is first given in Genesis to a man who injures his hip wrestling with God. 
The community of God is one that wrestles, that has questions, that doubts, that is challenged. The community of God is one that hangs in there, seeking God together. Next time, something very different will happen. In the spirit of seeking God together and discussing good stories with a friend, Pastor Bobby Harrison of The Church We Hope For will come and chat about these stories with me. Come and hear and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Also, friends, I could use some help. Would you please share this podcast with two people? That would help us grow. Join me on social media to get the latest info and to share your thoughts. I really would like to know your thoughts. This episode will have an image of a fishing rod with a hook and a squishy orange lure. So if you want to say anything about this episode, that's a great place to do it. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.